Now our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 5. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. We're going straight through this book of Romans. If you're visiting with us today or you're tuning in on the live stream and you haven't been with us before, we're going straight through this book of Romans and you've joined us as we've come to chapter 5 verses 3 to 11. I'm going to point out some things though that I think are crucial actually before I read the verses proper 3 to 11. First of all, I want you to notice as we started off last week, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now you'll notice that in those verses we are introduced to the theme that we've been introduced to before, and that is justification is by faith. Now, the word faith disappears, and it won't show up again until you get over to chapter 9 and verse 30. So I would ask you to go over to chapter 9 and verse 30, and I think there's a reason for what Paul is doing here in chapter 9 and verse 30. You'll notice, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? So what we have here, crucial to our text today and crucial to the text that lead up to chapter 9, verse 30, is in between here, we have a discussion in which Paul develops and discusses the results and the details and the blessings of those who are justified by faith. The main point of him kicking this off with you are at peace with God through faith, and then you don't see the word faith till you get over to chapter 9, verse 30 again, is all that data in between is establishing two things. It's establishing all of the blessings and benefits that we have being justified by faith, and it also is establishing we are eternally secure. Because what this really develops is the fact that once you've been justified by faith, you are forever secure. Now, I want you to notice verse 3 of Romans 5, and not only this, not only do we exult in the hope of the glory of God, but Also, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Now, I want to just pause here again, because I want to point out the fact that the key to grasping that we have justification by faith is not by feeling, it's by knowing. Do you see that in verse 3? It's by knowing. This becomes very, very important. The perfect tense participle of knowing means you know that these things are operative from the point of time you're justified. So from the moment that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, from the moment that you have actually trusted Christ as Savior, this judicial court scene of justification takes place, and you can know from that point on all the other data we're going to look at, not only today but in the next weeks. All right, here we go. Beginning at verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing... That tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, 
we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What a package of grace is developed in just those verses right there. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures and the exposition later. Will you join with me please in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee today to thank you for being all you are and for being who you are. And we thank you so much for this precious doctrine of justification. Lord, we see in reading a text like this and like the previous passages, we don't deserve justification. We sure can earn it. But what we can do, Lord, is bow before you and say thank you for it. Thank you for your precious son's work on our behalf. Thank you for giving us your spirit to work in our minds and in our hearts. We pray that we will continue to develop in ways that please thee. Lord, many of our people are traveling through some tough times right now, dark times. They need thy help. They need to understand the reality of this text we're going to look at today. We want to pray for Karen and the Dixon family that you would continue to grant them great comfort. We pray for the Binkley family, that you would grant them comfort. We pray for the sick of our church, Lord. We have quite a list, and many of them are in serious situations. We think of Diana Corning and Barb DeBreece and Maura Hovius and Margie Johnson and John Zoll. We would ask that your healing grace would be upon them and all the others that are affiliated with this church. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you've said we can come to you and cast our cares upon you because you do care for us. We want to thank you that you've provided for us. Thank you for blessing us. We pray for our country, Lord. Lord, we trust thee. We turn to thee. We cry out to thee. Please help us as a nation. We pray for our political leaders that you would save those that are lost. We pray that you would turn the minds of all who are in positions of authority that they might make decisions that will be helpful to your people. And we would certainly pray, dear Lord, that you would come get us soon. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Bible, there are at least five different kinds of suffering. You have corrective disciplinary suffering, and sometimes God will allow his people to go through some difficult things with the whole goal of getting them back on track into a close relationship with him. Then you have suffering for the glory of God. God simply allows someone to go through difficulties because it brings him glory. There was that story in the Gospel of John of the blind man, and people were saying, well, he must have sinned, his parents must have sinned, and Jesus said, no, this kind of suffering is for the glory of God. And then, of course, Jesus gave him his sight, and it was for the glory of God. Then there is suffering because of some satanic attack in which Satan is trying to get the believer to turn away from the Lord. Job experienced that. He got hit with a series of negative things, all designed to get him to turn his back on his relationship with the Lord. Then there's suffering because of God's devastating wrath judgment. God does allow people to suffer, and he pours out his wrath on people, God mockers, Christ rejecters, Bible haters. They do reach a point where he does that. We're seeing that in the book of Revelation. But then there's suffering that's designed to build character for one who's justified. Now, we're in a section of Romans that is really dealing at length with the topic of the doctrine of justification, 
justification by faith in which God makes this judicial declaration that a sinner is righteous. He gives him the righteousness of his own son and he declares him to be in a peace relationship with him forever. From that moment on, there is a permanent positional peace relationship one has with God from the moment they believed on the Lord. Well, since this is true, then why is it believers have troubles and trials? I mean, if we're in a peace relationship with God, how come at times we get sick? If we're in a peaceful relationship with God, why is it we have setbacks? How come it is we just don't sail right through life without a care in the world? In fact, one of the main arguments that is used against Christianity by atheists is if God really exists, why is there suffering? Of course, you could actually give it an antithetical argument to that and say, okay, let's say you say there is no God. Does that solve the problem for you? I mean, you don't have any answers to that either. The fact of the matter is there is an ultimate good for the suffering. But this question is not only asked by atheists, it's one that's asked by believers who are suffering. Some believers want to know, well, if I'm in such a wonderful relationship with God, and if God is not my enemy, why do I have problems? Why do I have trials? Why do I get hit with hardships? And Paul is in a section where he's telling us the blessings and benefits that we have because of our justification. And what he says here is one who's been justified by faith in Jesus Christ may exult in their trials, troubles, pressures, and afflictions, knowing that God is using them to develop their character. What a concept to boast about. Boast about trials. In fact, he says we exult in tribulations. We actually glory in them in a joyous way. And when he uses the word tribulations here, I mean, we're not talking here about little minor hassles in life. The car's low on gas, it's a hassle, we got to go get gas. We're not talking about that. When he uses that particular noun tribulation, he's talking about pressure stuff. He's talking about trial stuff. And Paul is referring to specific afflictions and troubles and trials that come upon one justified. And the truth is, we do experience that stuff. We do go under some great pressure. And the Apostle Paul wanted New Testament believers to understand there's purpose in it. God has real purpose for the troubles and trials that he permits his people to experience. They are in a peaceful relationship with him. But the troubles and trials are used by him, and they actually end up proving the security of the believer. The purpose is to develop our character. And Paul wanted every justified believer to understand that. I mean, if you live in this godless world, godless world, and you just go sailing through it without any trouble or any pressures or trials or problems, you may want to take a look at your relationship with the Lord because this world is not our friend. And... While we're in this world, we're not home. So what Paul develops here is you need to understand God has a purpose for trials. You're justified, all right. You're in a peace relationship with God, but there's a purpose for trials. And there are four main purposes that he wants us to know that he spells out in this text today. The first purpose is trials bring about perseverance. 
Verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. When we get hit with trouble and trials, the initial reaction we have is we hate it. At least that's my initial reaction. We begin to doubt God, question God, debate with God, get in discussions with God. But at some point, we get to the place where we just have to leave it to God. Because when you run out of the arguments and you've spouted off and said what you're going to say to God, there comes a point where you just have to say, well, I guess we're just going to have to leave it to God and go on. That's perseverance. That's perseverance. And it's trouble that produces that. It's trials in life that produces that quality. It brings it about. That verb means it achieves it. It actually produces something by labor. As you are laboriously going through troubles and trials, you are actually bringing about perseverance. What Paul wanted justified believers to understand is trials have a role to play in our lives. They're for our good. They take us to new levels of development in our relationship with the Lord. They take us to new levels of development in our character. In fact, they actually are used by God to develop our character to an award-winning level, which is far above and beyond our own expectations. Now, the first purpose that Paul mentions here is that trials develop our perseverance. And that noun perseverance means trials develop us to the point where we learn to patiently wait on the Lord. We learn to patiently trust God in difficult situations and circumstances and when we face difficult obstacles. Now that is not the normal response to trials. The normal response to trials is not patience. The normal response to trials, the natural response to trials is impatience. We don't like them and we don't want them. And we want to get out of them as soon as we can. What God does with troubles and trials, though, is he allows them to develop our character to the point that we'll learn to look to the Lord. We'll learn to wait on the Lord. We are at a peace relationship with him. We're going to discover that that peace relationship with him means a lot to us. It means that we can count on him for help. It means we can count on him for deliverance. In the meantime, as we're waiting on the Lord, we're laying up treasures in heaven and our character is being stabilized. Now that is just the opposite of what people in this world think. Because people in this world actually think the key to great character is comfort. They think that's the key to character, comfort. They have no clue as to the value of trials and troubles. They don't like them. And if a trouble or a struggle comes into their world, they don't see it as that which builds character. Frankly, there are those who want to try and have some type of trouble-free life, even if they don't have to work. But they're not helping these people, they're ruining these people. You know, we were watching a program not long ago, and there was a political commercial that came on that said, nobody should ever have to work two jobs to earn a good living. Nobody should ever have to work two jobs to earn a good living. And Well, when we were in Grand Rapids in school, we worked four jobs. I worked two, Mary worked two. We had a good life. We saw God provide for us. I mean, we saw God do wonderful things for us. The world doesn't understand that. They don't get this point. Now, when trials and pressures come, in all reality, ask yourself this, what are my options here? 
I'm going through difficulties. What are my options? Well, let's say you lose your job or health or relationship. What do you do? You lose your job and you pray, you look for another. You send out resumes, you fill out applications, you go to interviews. Then what? Suppose you lose your health. You pray, you go to a doctor, you follow the treatment plan, but then what? Suppose you lose a relationship. You talk to the Lord about it. You just move forward and you try to live life, but then what? At some point it comes down to, you know, I'm just going to have to wait on God. At some point, for one justified in Christ, it comes down to this reality. I'm just going to have to trust God. And when we reach that point where we've learned we just need to wait and trust God, we're developing perseverance. The kind of perseverance that God wants in justified people. When trials hit, we don't quit. We don't give up. We don't go berserk. What we do is we learn to patiently wait on the Lord, and when we, as a justified person, patiently wait on the Lord, we develop character. So God says, I want you to know that. The first purpose of trials is they're going to teach you to be patient and persevere. You'll see God do a lot of great things when you do that. The second purpose of the trials is trials bring about proven character. Verse 4 says, and perseverance, proven character. Now, we are at our best relationship with God when we have proven character. And proven character is tested character. I'm going to illustrate the point from a mountain horse example. I used to have two of the best mountain horses that you could own. Those horses were well-seasoned in the Rocky Mountains. And I took a guy from the Midwest on a hunt. This was when we lived in Idaho. I took a guy from the Midwest on a hunt, and we were in Idaho on this elk hunt, and we were 10 miles in. I'd let him use one of the horses. I was on my other horse. We rode 10 miles in. It started mid-afternoon. It was just a blizzard and rainy and sleety, and you couldn't see. So I said to the guy, let's... Um, Let's get out of here. We've got a 10-mile ride back to camp. So I said, we'll go back and we'll put the horses up, get them fed, get them cared for. We'll eat something. We'll get up tomorrow and have at it tomorrow. I said, we couldn't even hardly see. So we start down the trail, and this trail's going snaking around the side of a mountain. And Sheffy and Solomon were my two horses. Sheffy is leading with this guy from Michigan on its back. And as we come around the side of a mountain, I mean, this mountain comes down here. You've got a little trail, and then it drops off. That's it. And as we come around that trail, that back part of that trail washed out, and Sheffy went right down on his belly with his leg dangling over the cliff. Well, this guy from Michigan, I'm sure was glad I took him on this hunt. <laughs> he says, what do I do? I said, you sit there and don't move. Sit right in the center of that saddle. And you could see that horse. He's got a leg dangling over a cliff. You could see that horse mustering himself, and he pops up, and he walks on. When we got back to camp, we put the horses up, and we were in the tent. I said to him, how much do you think that horse is worth? He said, name your price. <laughs> Proven character. You don't want to go into the mountains with a horse that's never been there. You get killed. 
You want to be with someone that has a proven character, an animal that has a proven character, and so it is with the people of God. God says, I want people that have proven character. The way they get that character is when things go wrong, when the bottom falls out, when the trail washes out. What they learn there in those moments is I'm right there with them, and I will give them strength, and they'll get back up, and they're going to go on for my approval. And he said, when you've got that kind of character, it's proven character. You know, when Paul wanted to send Timothy to the Philippians, he said, I have nobody else who's like-minded except Timothy. Nobody else like-minded except him. And he says concerning him in Philippians 2.22, he has proven worth, proven character. You can trust him. And God says, the thing that I want my justified people to understand is I'm using trials to develop their character, their character to a proven ability, and I will bless that character. A third purpose for the trials is trials bring about hope. Verse 4 says, and proven character, hope. By the way, I want to point out something in this text. Hope is not a verb here, it's a noun, which it's not something you do. It's something that you end up with. Now, this is not the normal way that most people think you're really going to establish faith and hope. It's not the normal way. In fact, Usually, for a lot of people, trouble and trials causes hopelessness. I mean, they get into troubles and trials, and instead of them saying, you know, this is going to really develop my faith and hope, they get skeptical, they get into a frame of mind of despair. And if you were to ask most people, do you want stronger and better character, and do you want stronger and better faith, and do you want your hope strengthened? I'm sure most people say, absolutely, but what most people don't want are the trials necessary to produce that. We want hope, but we don't want trials to come into our life to produce that hope. And when a person is going through trials, he has to fine-tune his hope and faith in something. Well, what God wants for his justified people is they learn to trust in him. Trials bring God's justified people to a greater level of trust and faith and hope in him. God uses those troubles and trials to draw them to himself. We don't like that. We just should go to bed at night and wake up the next day and just have a lot more faith, a lot more hope, and a lot more strength. But that's not how it works. God says, my people need to understand this. It's the trials that I allow justified people to have that strengthens their hope. When you see a person who is losing their children or a mate loses a spouse or a child loses a parent, one of the great strengthening hopes they have is I'm going to see them again. It's one of the great hopes. Well, it's that trial that produces the hope. And that's the way it is for every single person who's justified. So the purpose of justification is, first of all, it brings us to perseverance. It brings us proven character. It brings about hope. And then trials bring about a hope that will never disappoint. That's what he says in verse 5. And the hope does not disappoint. Troubles and trials are fatiguing. When you go through difficulties, they zap your strength. 
But when a believer patiently endures and waits on the Lord, he, she will never be disappointed. I promise you this. If you purpose to stay faithful through trials, you'll not end up disappointed. God has a reason for us experiencing what we experience, and when we stay faithful, the end result will be we'll not be disappointed. In fact, that's an interesting word, disappointed. It's one that means we won't end up disgraced, we won't end up dishonored, we won't end up ashamed because of unfulfilled hope. You know, when you think about Job, who stayed faithful in the trials that he went through, and the promise is, if you stay faithful through trials, you won't end up being disappointed. He ended up with double blessings. Double blessings. Yeah, his trial was tough. As tough as they get. You read that book of Job, I mean, his whole world caved in, in every way, shape, and form. And yet he stayed the course, and he developed a character that he hoped in the Lord. And as a result of that, it didn't disappoint him. He ended up with a life of double blessings. So what God says to those justified is, look, you're going to go through some trials. It's going to build your character. I'm going to allow my justified people to experience that. But you'll never be disappointed You'll never be disappointed if you stay faithful to me during that because what you'll also see is you're going to enter a new level of my love. A whole new level of my love. He says in verse 5, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. Now I understand that to mean that if you will purpose to remain faithful and stable and continue to hope in the Lord and wait upon the Lord, there will be a very unique level of love that the Holy Spirit will produce in you. And I think, I take the position, that means God will do some very special things for you to let you know he loves you. If you purpose to, as a person who's in a justified relationship, you're a believer in Christ, and you purpose that you're going to allow trials and troubles to not budge you or move you or sway you. You're going to allow trials and troubles to be used by the Lord. You'll persevere. You'll allow it to develop your character. You'll patiently wait on the Lord. You'll not be disappointed. And the Holy Spirit is going to do a special work of grace in your mind and heart in which God says, I'm going to take you to another level in which you will understand how much I love you. You'll enter into a brand new sphere if you're faithful in this. And the conjunction four that begins verse six introduces us to three critical theological realities upon which our hope is developed. He launches into a discussion here about the love of God. He wants believers to understand the depth of the love of God for them. He wants believers to understand it. And the first reality is we have hope because Christ died for us because of God's love. He says in verse 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, there are some churches and they just take the position, you want to make the people feel good about themselves. You don't want to say things negative about them. You don't want to make them think they're ungodly or sinners. You don't want them to get that idea about themselves. They won't feel good and they aren't going to come back. So when they come, just let them know God loves them and everything else. Well, Paul says you need to understand something about the love of God when you're going through hardships. You need to understand the love of God even before you were justified. 
You need to understand the love of God and the way he saw you before he justified you. And what apparently he's doing by interjecting this in this context is he's saying these troubles are going to end up showing you how much God loves you and they're going to end up causing us to love the Lord, but they will produce by the Spirit of God a unique level of a sense of things that you're loved by the Lord. And he starts it off by saying, I want you to know how much God loved you before he even justified you. And there are a series of facts that he reveals. First of all, he died for you when you were helpless. That's what he says in verse 6. For while we were still helpless. That's an interesting word. It doesn't flatter people. It basically says you need to understand what Jesus Christ did and how much God loved you. He actually allowed his son to die for you when you were weak, sickly, feeble, and frail. You had no strength to save yourself at all. You were totally incapable of working out some righteousness, totally incapable of having enough strength to have justification in the sight of God. You were helpless. Then he says, and Christ died at just the right time. Verse 6 at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He said, I want you to understand something. This whole historical thing of when Christ was born, and that's the season we're in now, and then when ultimately he died, this thing didn't happen by chance. I mean, it wasn't like, here's Genesis, and now we go through the entire Old Testament, and then you show up to the birth of the Lord, then you go into the church age, and you go on another couple thousand years. He said, that wasn't a coincidence. This whole thing was carefully timed by God. In fact, Galatians says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so he's basically saying, you need to understand this. He had you in mind, you in mind that he was going to justify in the whole timing of your life, even the timing of when his son came. Just as trouble hits us at different times, God's grace is perfectly timed. So there's your second fact. The third fact that Paul brings up is Christ died for us when we were ungodly. That's what he says in verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. I hope you see yourself there because that's the way you were and so was I. Prior to justification, that's it. Asabase is the word. It means we were ungodly, impious people who did ungodly, impious things. And it didn't matter how good we thought we were. And it didn't matter how religious we thought we were. Without this justification work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, we were all ungodly. And when he says Christ died for the ungodly, he uses a preposition for huper. And that's a particular preposition that means Christ died in our place. He died in our stead. He actually took our place when we were ungodly. Don't flatter yourself about you. Admit the truth. This was you. This was me before we trusted him. And by the way, you may be here today or listening to this today and consider yourself to be the worst sinner in the world. You may consider yourself to be the worst sinner at this church. Well, look what the text says. Christ died for ungodly people. He didn't die for good people. He died for ungodly people. You come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll experience the justification of God. 
Then he says, rarely would someone die for a righteous or good person. Verse 7, for one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. I mean, it does happen now and then. Every now and then there's someone who makes the decision to lay down their life for someone else. You have some of those people that are called into situations such as our police officers or firefighters, and they'll make a decision to risk their life. But here's the thing. When they go in there, they don't expect they're going to die. They may end up dying, and it's an amazing sacrifice they've made to do it. They don't expect it. I mean, if you flat out knew, I'm going to go into this situation and die for somebody, you might be willing to do it for someone that you thought was a good person. But you sure wouldn't be willing to do it for someone that you thought was an ungodly wretch. So Paul follows that up. And he says in verse 8, Christ died for us because of God's own love. He brings that up. It was the love of God. He wants his people to understand. You need to understand how much you were loved before God saved you. He watched his own son being beaten, tortured, crucified. He monitored all of that, did nothing to stop it. He watched godless, wicked people do that to his own son. Why? Because God was demonstrating his own love, as Paul said, toward us. Toward us. We who have been justified. He was showing us he loved us. And then, he says, Christ died for us while we were, we were sinners. He says in verse 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've missed the mark so many times. See, what God wants us to understand here is, look, don't be questioning my love for you when you go through trials and troubles. There's a reason that I'm allowing these trials and troubles to hit. I'm going to really develop you. I'm going to bless you. You're going to enter into a whole new level of my love. This is the kind of love you had before you were justified. I saw you in your sinful state. I saw you as ungodly. And I came into your life and I was the one who justified you. And you can be sure of this. If you will remain faithful through the troubles and trials, I'm going to take you to a whole new level of my love. Which brings us to the second reality. We have hope because having been justified by Christ's blood, we are saved from God's wrath. Verse 9 is critical. Much more than Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. I have a real short fuse for those people who are theological imbeciles eschatologically and say you're going into the tribulation based on this preposition, from. From. You will be saved from the wrath of God. So these people that are trying to put the church into the tribulation obviously don't take the time to actually study the grammar. Because the preposition apo, from, means you're kept from the time frame of it. You're kept from beside it. You're not going into it and getting out of it. That'd be a different preposition. The preposition that's used here is you are kept from the wrath of God. That is, you're not even going into it. You're not going into the tribulation, and you're sure not going to go into hell. Once you've been justified, you have been forever declared righteous from experiencing anything that would be remotely connected to the wrath of God. And you say, we don't deserve that. We sure don't. It was the blood of Christ. 
That's exactly what Paul says in verse 9. We're justified by his blood, not by our works. We're justified by his blood. It's that blood that enables God to calculate a person as righteous and guarantees we'll never have anything connected to the wrath of God. We're not going to experience hell. We're not going to experience some type of invented purgatory, which is made up by religious people. And we're certainly not going into the tribulation. That little preposition, apo, solves all of it. Which brings us to the third reality. We have hope because we've been reconciled in our relationship to God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we're reconciled to God. Justified by Christ's blood, we're reconciled through Christ's death. Now, when it comes to this matter of reconciliation, reconciliation is about us being reconciled to God. It's man that needs reconciling to God, not God to man. Man has turned away from God. God's offered his salvation to man. It's man that's walked away from the Lord, not God. He's always been sovereign. He's always been merciful. He's always been gracious. And when it comes to this matter of reconciliation, we're talking about having a change in a relationship from being an enemy to being at peace with God. And there are two things that God needed to do to reconcile us to himself. First of all, he had to change the world into a savable position, which he did when his son went to the cross. When his son went to the cross, it enabled the world to be in a savable position. Anyone in the world who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But then secondly, he must change an individual into a saved position. Now Paul is addressing this subject of reconciliation and he says, I want you to understand five facts about this. First of all, our reconciliation occurred when we were enemies of God. That's what he says in verse 10. For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now you think about this. When you were an enemy of God, when I was an enemy of God, he reconciled us into a relationship with him. He did it by the spirit of God. That spirit of God tracked us down. He authorized that Holy Spirit to bring us under conviction and track us down. And then he saved us when we were his enemies. And understand this. You need to understand this. If you have not been justified, that is, if you've not had a moment where you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, you need to understand this. You are an enemy of God because of what he let his son go through for you. See, people walk around in this world thinking God just loves us all. No, no. No, he loved us all right. He put his son on that cross. But if you don't respond to that son on the cross, you are a hateful, hostile enemy of God. Hateful, hostile enemy, an ekthros. Secondly, our reconciliation was due to the death of God's son. Understand that. You're not going to reconcile yourself through your works or religion or through your attempts to keep the Old Testament law, the death of God's Son is what makes the reconciliation possible. The whole focus of our relationship with God is on Jesus Christ. He's our justification. And don't miss this point. It's Christ's death that's responsible for our justification. There is no other name under heaven whereby we may be saved. 
Thirdly, our reconciliation means we are saved. I love this statement that's made there in verse 10. We shall be saved by his life. I love this. I love this verse because this part of the verse is a future indicative which guarantees eternal security. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you now share, you now share in the life of Christ, and that guarantees that you will be saved in the future forevermore. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been justified. Fourthly, our reconciliation means we glory in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This is what we glory in. We don't glory in ourselves or in our religion. We glory in Jesus Christ. The whole potential we have to glorify God in any way, shape, or form is found in him. It's not found in us. We glory in our relationship with him. And if you have been justified, you are guaranteed a triumphant entrance into the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. And the final fact Paul brings out is this reconciliation is something we just received. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. We received Jesus Christ. When we received Jesus Christ, we were reconciled to God. And that verb is an aorist tense, which means it points back to a punctiliar moment, a point of time when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice Paul is using personal pronouns we, throws himself in this. He's looking back 30 years in his own life, and he's saying, I received that on that road to Damascus 30 years ago, the moment I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I was justified in the sight of God. He came to understand God loved him, and trials and troubles were used by God to develop him in his character, and that's what they do for us. So the real question is, have you been justified? Let's ask it another way. Has there been a point of time where you personally believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and had God make this judicial calculation declaring you righteous? Here's what you get so far as we've gone through Romans. This is what you get if you've been justified. You get peace with God. You get access to God. You get joy and meaning to trials. You get the indwelling spirit of God that is going to produce within you a realization that you are loved by God. You get deliverance from the wrath of God and you get reconciliation with God. All of that, if you're justified. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and no matter what's going on in your world, you're rich. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, this would be a wonderful day for you to settle that right where you sit. Just invite Christ to come into your life. Receive him. Just like the text says, receive him right now. Tell him you want him in your life. Father, we thank you so much for the precious word of God. Thank you for this great epistle to the Romans. It is certainly uplifting and encouraging to know that you're our God. You'll walk with us through any valley that we go through, even the valley of the shadow of death. We thank you for that. 
We pray that we would learn to rest in you and trust in you, Lord, and we thank you that you've promised that if we have a proven character that is patiently waiting on you, it will never be disappointed, and we know that's true. May we learn that beautiful, wonderful lesson. In Jesus' name, amen.